0: Welcome to the Ferguson Library Podcast, brought to you by the Public Library here in Stamford, Connecticut. In this episode, we bring you Andrew Iden, co-author of the graphic novel trilogy, March, in which the late Congressman John Lewis recounted his early days in the civil rights movement. Aydin's new graphic novel, Run, covers the travails of John Lewis after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1965. This event took place via Zoom on September 18, 2021. Andrew Aiden was introduced by Ferguson Library's Head of Youth Services, Elizabeth McKay.
1: I'm really looking forward to being able to introduce Andrew Aiden. He worked with Representative John Lewis. He's an Atlanta native. He served for more than 13 years on the staff of Congressman Lewis, predominantly serving as... Um, a digital director and policy advisor. In 2008, after learning that his boss had been inspired as a young man by the 1957 comic book Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story, Aiden conceived the March trilogy and began collaborating with Representative Lewis to write it while also composing a master's thesis on the history and impact of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story. Andrew continues to write comics and lecture about nonviolent civil disobedience and the history of comics and the civil rights movement. He's a graduate of the Lovett School in Atlanta, Trinity College in Hartford, and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author, a National Book Award winner, a Robert F. Kennedy Book Award honoree, a Prince Award winner, a Cybert Medal winner a Walter Dean Myers Award winner, a two-time Eisner Award winner, and the recipient of multiple Coretta Scott King honors. And that's not even the full list of all of his literary awards. Um, I'm very pleased to be able to present to you today, Andrew Eaton.
2: Thank you so much, Liz. It's great to be with everybody. Uh, my name is Andrew Aydin. I started out in Connecticut uh, when I went to college, and um, but it really all started for me back in Georgia, where I grew up. My father was a Turkish Muslim immigrant um, who left when I was very young, and I was raised by a single mother. And growing up that way, you have a, a you kind of blame yourself. You wonder. You know, why did my father leave? Was it my fault? And that's what led me into reading and comic books in particular. You know, my mother was always a reader. She was that lady. You know her at the library. There are many of you. Uh, She has a library card for every member of the family, and she's using each one to check out as many books as possible, to reserve as many books as possible. Um, If she could have had a library card for the dog, she would have. That was my mother. Um, and so in my house growing up, there were all these books. Mama used to keep this stack beside her bed, and it'd be 5, 10, 15 books deep. And she was always reading. And she would she would entice me with it. She would tell me about uh, some of the the drama or the violence or the action or some of the, when I got a little older, some of the salacious details. I would spend my summers with... Um, my grandmother up here where I am now in in Western North Carolina near Asheville. And my grandmother didn't quite have as many books around, but what she did have was my uncle's comic books. And so she would give those to me to read, which, you know, as a now adult comic book fan actually makes me cringe because, you know, I think the first X-Men comic I ever actually read was in fact an original printing of X-Men number one that my uncle had. Um, and the idea of handing those to a nine-year-old just kind of gives me a little bit of heart palpitations. Um, But my grandmother didn't care. She wanted me to read. She wanted me to be entertained. And then she took me, I remember after I read a bunch of them, and I'd read through just about everything that my uncle had uh, collected, she took me, we were at a Piggly Wiggly, which is a grocery store out here in western North Carolina, and... She bought me a comic book. It was Uncanny X Men 317. It had the lenticular cover. Uh, it was the Fatal Attraction series. If we've got any comic book fans in the audience, um, and I was hooked. I think part of what resonated so strongly with me was that these were stories about people trying to do the right thing simply because it was the right thing to do. The morality of it, the sense of justice, um, and I needed that. I needed male role models you know um, I needed I needed to see that there was some sense of justice in the world because the other thing was you know growing up in Atlanta in the 80s with a single mom um, I witnessed firsthand all that she had to go through um, because she wasn't married because she didn't have a husband uh, to take care of things for her Um, and it wasn't just like a matter of splitting chores in the house I can remember my mother not being able to get a loan I can remember my mom trying to deal with things with the house and them saying, where's your husband, little lady? We're not going to talk to you about this. And it really instilled in me a sense of, of right and wrong that I carried into my politics. Showed me that um, I wanted to be a better man than those that I was seeing. And my mother encouraged this, uh, not just the politics, but, but finding my voice in comics i remember being 12 years old and going to dragon con for the first time Um, and i look back on it and i still can't believe my mother let me go by myself but she sent me downtown atlanta with one of those uh cell phones you know that was like a brick like this Um, and i and i remember seeing these creators for the first time understanding that there are people behind these books behind these comics and i remember being so impressed at the idea that there were people who could make a living simply from the power of their ideas and what they could dream up. That seemed so free to me. That seemed like an almost unreal way to be able to live your life. So as I got a little bit older, I kept reading. I kept going to DragonCon. I kept going to other conventions. And then I got a... uh, Scholarship, actually. That's, that's how I ended up at Trinity College in Hartford. Um, they gave me a full ride. And so I showed up, not understanding exactly how to dress. Um, it's very warm in Georgia, and it's very cold in Connecticut. So I remember, I remember my first snowstorm at school, and you know, I, 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 I didn't have boots. Uh, I had a jacket, but I did not have what you would call a coat. And I remember putting on just layers and layers trying to survive and thinking like, how do you people do this? Um, But I brought with me that sense of right and wrong. And so I got very involved in student government. Um, I was that uh, nerd uh, that was vice president of his student government his sophomore year of college. Um, We led sit-ins to force the administration to keep the library open longer. Because for those of us who uh, were on scholarships, who were living on campus, they basically had you living in these Mendeleyan cells, right? They were about eight feet wide and 12 to 14 feet long. And uh, most of the room was taken up by a cabinet where you're supposed to put all your clothes and belongings. And so if you wanted to study, if you wanted to have some quiet time to work, you really had to go to the library because just imagine dozens and dozens of those rooms all next to each other, with all these hormonal teenagers running around doing what they do. The rich kids had the housing off campus. They parents got them apartments and things like that, and those weren't available to us on scholarship. Um, and so when they closed the libraries at 10 and 11 o'clock, we thought that was ridiculous because we had so much more work to do. So we wrote a letter. We followed the nonviolent process, not having ever met John Lewis uh, up to that point, though he was my congressman since I was three years old, um, And we forced them to change that, and they kept it open. Um, And I remember thinking how amazing it was to me that there was actually a way to use your youth and your passion to force change when others didn't necessarily see the necessity. And that had a big impression on me. So then I started interning for uh, uh, Kevin Sullivan, who became the Lieutenant Governor. Um, and he really was a mentor for me in those early years. Um, he took a liking to me. I think you know, we were two kind of chubby, dark-haired kids. <laughs> and, um, and he gave me a chance. And he let me start on his staff after I graduated, um, working as a special assistant, sort of being his floor assistant when he needed me and going to events and helping him with whatever I could. I'll never forget my first day in the state capitol. It was the day after graduation. I never took a break. Uh, I graduated on a Sunday and I started to work on a Monday. And my mother and my grandmother showed up because they hadn't gone home from graduation yet. And part of me always believed that they showed up because they wanted to make sure I was telling the truth that I was really going to work in the state capitol, that I was really working for the lieutenant governor, I'll never forget them peering their heads into the office as I'm sitting there and totally mortified and embarrassed that there's my mother and my grandmother on my first day of work. And they said, oh, don't mind me, we're just looking around. And it's like, this is an office place, it's hard not to mind them. And they walked all the way into the lieutenant governor's office and he looks up from some meeting and he says, can I help you? And then they introduced themselves, and he was very kind. And then I took them to lunch. And that's where it really started for me in politics. Um, I went to work for John Larson after. I handled veteran affairs. uh, So that meant that I was doing casework. Um, Casework is is not glamorous. It's very difficult. And this was at the height of the Iraq war when we were bringing back dozens and dozens of soldiers into Hartford uh, every day who had come from Iraq, who had come from Afghanistan, and we, didn't, we weren't prepared. We weren't able to bring back their medical records or preserve the necessary information so that when they came back to the United States, they were able to get the care that they'd been promised through the VA system. And to be very frank and candid with you, it took a huge emotional toll to look across the table at these veterans every day and not be able to help them in the way that I thought I should. And I did my best for as long as I could. But then my mother... Asked that I move back a little bit closer. I've been gone a long time. And so I applied for a job in the congressman's office. I thought maybe Washington, D.C. would be close enough. It's one day's drive from where she was living. She had moved out to Western North Carolina at this point. And I'll never forget it. I remember getting the interview for that meeting, and I go in, and there's John Lewis sitting there. And we talk about Atlanta. Atlanta. We talk about people I hadn't gotten to talk about in years, people I grew up with, Maynard Jackson and his daughters, Andy Young, all these people that have been in my life as a young person in Atlanta. And I remember at the end of the interview, he said, is there anything you want to say? I said, not really, sir. The only thing I would say is that, you know, I'd worked for a number of politicians before and, um, Every time my mother said, oh, that's nice, but I've never really heard of them before. And then I told my mother I was interviewing for a job with John Lewis. And my mother said, oh, that's great. He's a good one. And the congressman kind of got that half smirk that he would do, you know, where he's like. And he turned and he said, well, why don't you go call your mom and tell her you got the job? And that's where it started. That's how I started with Congressman Lewis. You know, it was a difficult time back then for the congressman. He, um, he had a number of setbacks. Uh, I think the John Lewis that we celebrate today was not the John Lewis that I started working for. I started answering his mail, and I remember being shocked at the backlog. You know, His office had had some challenges with management and things, um, and there were t- tens of thousands of letters. And it was my job to sift through them all and to make sure that everybody got a response. Because to the congressman, personally, each letter was very important. It is how he met Dr. King. It was how he became a part of the movement, by writing a letter and and getting that response. So I got to work. I started to learn his voice. Uh, Learned a lot about him. And he took a liking to me. So that then about a year later, when he had a primary challenge, he asked me if I would come down and serve as his press secretary on the re-election campaign. And I was ecstatic. But I didn't understand exactly what the challenges were. I was in Washington, and it wasn't until I got down to Atlanta that I understood how much blowback he had received for his endorsement of Secretary Clinton. That he was targeted... Uh, in, a, in a way that I think hurt him very deeply Because it questioned His very involvement in the movement His commitment to the cause And that was everything to John Lewis And so on that campaign the big question became How do we tell people How do we show people what John Lewis was, Had accomplished in his life How do we tell that whole story And I was definitely the youngest person invited to be in those meetings. And as I heard so many ideas about essentially different variations of we should do a documentary, I couldn't help think that that wasn't enough, that my generation needed more. And so we carried on, and I got to hear more stories that I'd never heard before that weren't in books As the congressman and I traveled around the district, as he gave speeches, as he talked to school children, I would hear these stories about SNCC and the role that the young people played in the civil rights movement and the unbelievable power they were able to recognize through their organizing. I heard the stories of the sit-in movements and how in Nashville they were able to differentiate themselves and and lead to essentially uh, stronger reforms and a bigger movement than other places, because they were disciplined, because of their leadership, because of their community in the sense of, essentially, their commitment. And I remember thinking, why had nobody told me these stories before? I grew up in Atlanta. John Lewis had been my congressman since I was three years old. And yet the version I always heard was about the March on Washington and Selma. That was it. Those were the versions they told me. I didn't understand that the March on Washington couldn't have been possible without the Freedom Rides, because you couldn't have brought that many people of color to Washington on segregated buses. You needed the buses to be integrated to stage such a large action, and I didn't understand how the Freedom Summer and the challenge of the Democratic Convention in 1964 set the stage for much to be possible, that it elevated the issue of civil rights, and in particular voting rights. To the national stage, so that it forced LBJ to act when Selma happened. So I remember hearing all these stories and just being amazed and and just coming to love this man even more than I already had. And then when the campaign was almost over, we started talking about what we were going to do after. You know, it's one of those late nights, you're tired, you're sweaty. You've been out all day. you got a little bit of sunburn. And some folks were saying, you know, I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to go see my parents. And I said I was going to Dragon Con again. And everybody laughed at me. All these uh, stuffed shirts and well-heeled political operatives. They just kind of went, oh, there goes that nerd again. Except for one person. I heard a deep voice from the back of the room say, don't laugh. There was a comic book during the movement, and it was deeply influential. And that comic book was Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story. It sold for 10 cents. It was 16 pages cover to cover. It was done in a beautiful studio house style from the 1950s. And I remember going home that night and looking it up on the Internet and just being amazed at how well done it was. I mean, it was This introduction to Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and nonviolent civil disobedience. I remember sitting there thinking, well, why isn't there a John Lewis comic book? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that could be the solution to our problems, or at least a big part of it. So I went back to work the next day. We had a number of one of those meetings. We talked yet again about documentaries. And then I raised my hand and I said, what about a comic book? And Again, it was much the same reaction. I got laughed at. Even the congressman thought it was a little bit preposterous. I think at one point he said he thought I'd lost my mind. But I couldn't give up the idea because it made so much sense to me. This generation, my generation, we grew up on the Internet. Our language is sequential narrative. What is a tweet or a meme or a post but sequential narrative? It is words and pictures working together to tell a greater truth to convey information in an efficient and immediately recognizable way.
3: And so I kept asking. You know, it bothered some of
2: the other staff. They didn't understand why I was being so persistent. But I think a congressman went home and talked to his wife about it. His wife Lillian was a librarian. She loved books. And so one day we were campaigning just at the very end of the campaign, just before Election Day. We were over off Wallace Road, which is near where the congressman used to live. We're hammering in yard signs. All of a sudden, there was a flash of lightning. I remember the congressman looking up and kind of looking around. And then we heard the thunder roll. And all of a sudden, John Lewis took off like a light, 68 years of age, just full sprint back to the car. We realized that he had left us behind, and so we took off to follow him. And we all dive into the car, and you're hearing the patter, 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 patter on the roof. One of the interns says, ask him again. Can't go anywhere now. So we started talking about it. And then the Congressman turned and he got that that little half grin on his face. And he said, okay, I'll do it, but only if you write it with me. Changed my life. I'd never written a comic book before. <clears throat> I didn't know what I was doing. I'd read them, but I'd never had the opportunity or the impetus to try and actually put a script together, much less a, for someone like John Lewis. And so we spent the next two and a half years trying to figure out could we find someone to publish it? Was anyone interested? Could I do it? I ended up writing what became March Book One entirely on spec, just to prove that this could work as a comic book. And most of publishing said no. All these fancy New York publishing houses that you think of that ushered in these great works, they said no. So we found a teeny tiny publisher of four people that I pitched over the table at a comic book convention. They introduced us to Nate Powell, and that's how this process began. We didn't know if it would work. I think some people believe that that was our only goal, was just to tell people about John Lewis. But one of the things I did at the same time is I started working on my master's thesis at Georgetown. And, you know, it seemed perfectly reasonable. I was going to work full-time on the Hill. I was going to write a series of graphic novels, and I would get a master's degree. No need for a personal life. And when it came time to write my thesis, they asked, you know, they say they give you this talk about, like, well, you're going to have to spend a lot of time with this. What do you really want to know more about? I said I wanted to know more about Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. I wanted to know how it was made, who made it, how it was used. They thought I was a little nuts. But they agreed. I had a wonderful thesis advisor. She was an economist at the World Bank. And she was Japanese. So she understood the power of comics. It was part of her culture. So I set out trying to figure out exactly how they used Martin Luther King in the Montgomery story. And we found several things. First, we found out that Dr. King himself actually helped edit it, which just kind of blew my mind, right? Like, that's not the the Dr. King you think of. Like, nobody says, Martin Luther King Jr., comic book editor. And yet there we were. We had the letters. We had the information. We had his words offering his guidance on the script. And what's funny is it was just sitting in an archive available online at Stanford, but nobody had put two and two together about what he was talking about. And then we found, because I was fortunate enough to have Jim Lawson, the congressman's mentor from Nashville, helping me with my thesis, and who had used the comic book in some of the earliest workshops he led before he even went to Nashville, when he was working as a field secretary for the Fellowship of Reconcilia- Reconciliation. And he had led workshops in the Midwest as early as 1958. And the day have been given the comic book and that the students on their own after these workshops went and led sit-ins, actually understood the philosophy. And then all of this came about because they were on something called a reconciliation tour. Essentially, Jim Lawson and his colleagues had gone all throughout the South and the Midwest and wherever they would be had, to schools and libraries and church basements, giving nonviolence workshops and giving the comic book to anyone who would listen. And who would take it with them and spread the gospel. And so as I put all this together into my thesis, and I was telling the congressman all about it. It's funny, you can actually go back and look. There's a 2012 clip as I had just finished my thesis and turned it in. We were on the way to finishing March. And and this comic had been translated into Arabic and used in the Middle East. It was part of the the Arab Spring. It was used in Tahrir Square congressman goes on, he excitedly talks about it with Andrea Mitchell, and he gets a few of the facts wrongs about the print run and all that sort of stuff. Um, but you could see how it was clicking in his mind what we were doing, that this wasn't just about telling a story anymore, that this wasn't about inspiring a new nonviolent revolution, that we had to tell each of these chapters and leave all of these lessons behind so that there would be a handbook, a guidebook, there are young activists coming up to understand their power, to understand how another generation had done it, so that they would be able to take the reins and lead when John Lewis was no longer able. We didn't know it was going to work, but the first inkling we had that we were onto something rather substantial came just before Book One was released. About a week, I got a phone call from a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Nice guy. I've gotten to be really good friends with him since. This is the first time I'd ever heard from him. And he said, look, I'm calling because I wanted you to know that I read your book and I loved it. But I thought you'd be interested in knowing that my nine-year-old son read it. And now he's gone and put on a Sunday suit and he's marching around my house demanding equality for everyone. And that was it the idea that we could instill a social consciousness in every nine-year-old in America. It was like a lightning bolt moment for us, that it was working, that before the book had even been released, putting this book in the hands of a nine-year-old could engender such a response. We knew we were on the right path. So then we set out to essentially replicate what it was that Jim Lawson had done. We led our own reconciliation tour for years, with each book, and even beyond. We went to schools and libraries. Matter of fact, I went to Stanford and visited y'all. We went all over the country. We did hundreds of events together and apart, giving talks and making sure that all the young people we could find got copies of our books. And I can't tell you how much it meant to me to see John Lewis looking down on Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington a little over a year ago and see Black Lives Matter written out on the street just as it was done with March on the cover of March Book Three and seeing a generation that had now grown up with March in their classrooms, using the lessons Continue John Lewis's fight, to pick up the baton, to continue dramatizing the conflict. And I know it gave him great joy when we talked about it. But at the same time, over those years, it became apparent that too many people thought of Selma as an end and not a beginning that they had this false understanding of Selma as an event that fixed so many problems instead of a high point on a long road. People did not understand that the pushback to the Voting Rights Act, that the attempts to undermine and weaken its protections began immediately after its signing. And they didn't understand that John Lewis continued to have to fight this fight Not just for the protections of the Voting Rights Act, but some of the most basic protections of the Civil Rights Act, which is more than a year old. Churches in southern Georgia still had not integrated. And so two days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act, John Lewis went to America's Georgia, had a protest in front of the church, was arrested and taken to jail. And then that night, two days after President Johnson had handed John Lewis a pen that he used to sign the Voting Rights Act, The Klan, led by their grand dragon, Calvin Craig, led their largest hooded march in decades. What he said in that march struck me more than anything else. He urged his followers to be peaceful, to not hoot and holler, to not call out, to essentially be nonviolent. And they led a march through downtown America's just as the civil rights movement had, except the sky was covered with their pointed hoods and their vitriolic message. And that's where we begin in RUN. I never thought RUN could be so important, but time has shown us that these are the lessons we have to learn now. We have to understand that the forces that we see in our country right now working to suppress The ability of every person to register and vote are the same forces that began on August 7th, 1965, pushing back against the Voting Rights Act, trying to weaken it, trying to eliminate its protections. And then we look at what happened with Julian, the congressman's best friend. He spoke out against the war, and they tried to take away his seat in the Georgia General Assembly. We look at his other friend, uh, Sammy Young, who was murdered for trying to use a white bathroom. Or Jonathan Daniels, who was murdered by a sheriff's deputy after a protest in a setup that the police were complicit in. And we look at John Lewis's push and his persistence to keep SNCC integrated. To push back against those who had seen so much violence that they believed that there was no possible way for white people and black people to live together and that insistence on an integrated SNCC, on the protections of the multiracial democracy, on the true ideals of the beloved community that John Lewis had fought so hard for with Dr. King. It cost
3: him his chairmanship.
2: And then when his colleagues in SNCC began behaving in ways that he did not find moral or ethical, trying to undermine Dr. King, trying to sabotage his efforts. Don Lewis again showed the moral courage and resigned in protest. But I think in my own life, this book showed me a lot more than just the politics. A little over four years ago, my mother passed away. And as most of you know, a little over a year ago, the congressman passed away.
3: And the loss that John Lewis experienced in this book it stayed with me, and it helped me understand that I'll get through this period, then I can survive this.
2: I remember showing him some of those last pages and hearing in his voice how excited he was to see himself, to see this story told. Because we all want to imagine John Lewis the hero. We forget how many times he had to pick himself back up. We forget about the losses. We forget about the body blows that didn't come on camera or on a a courthouse steps. We forget about the betrayals. We forget about how he suffered and then reinvented himself into something new. And that's what Run is about. Run is about how John Lewis came from being an activist and went on to become a public servant. In many ways, it's a call to action for all of us. For those of us who've marched and protested, been in the streets over the last decade, we have a new mission. John Lewis gave us our marching orders. It's time for us to run.
0: The graphic novels on which John Lewis and Andrew Iden collaborated can be found at the Ferguson Library and at bookstores everywhere. You can learn more about Andrew Aydin at andrewaydin.com, that's A-N-D-R-E-W-A-Y-D-I-N dot And for more information about the library, you can always visit fergusonlibrary.org. Thanks for listening.